iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, where did you say, what are you in trouble for? I don't even know what. Um, well, this is very important that people know this. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, no, it was at the beginning of the, the Times Radio program today. Yes, there was a there was a technical issue with our newsreader. Yes, so I had to just keep talking when I didn't really have a lot to say, which is the story of my working life really. And I ended up, I it was it was a joke, but I said that I'd watch the rugby on Saturday. It wasn't much of a joke. I mean, you know, it's awful when you have to. I didn't even want to finish the sentence. You really. have to examine the entrails yeah. of a joke that didn't work. Well, it's just a joke. Don't draw attention. But to I it. do know it's not goals in rugby. Um, tries. But, I mean, I do also know that England were just dreadful. They were just dreadful on Saturday afternoon. They had no answer to the French. No answer at all. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Rien de tout. <laughs> uh, absolutely crap. Anyway, I'm sure things will improve. Um, can I just mention that we have had a French correspondent? Of course you can. Well, actually, it's uh, Deborah who isn't French. Hello, ladies from a hospital bed in Annecy in France annoying for you. Uh, there I was minding my own business on an unexceptional blue piste nearly two weeks ago. I'm just going over to our skiing correspondent. What's a blue piste? It's quite an easy one. Is it? Yeah. Or is it the easiest? No, greens. I think it's the easiest. Is it? Yeah. And is blue next? Uh, then it goes blue, then red, then black. Okay. On an unexceptional blue piste, just cannot say that, nearly two weeks ago, and a patch of ice surprised me, hence me now being flat on my back with a fractured pelvis far from home. Oh, no, that's horrible. Oh, Deborah, but really, that's horrible. Uh, my French is beyond appalling, and the English rugby team, having given the staff here good reason for much derision, British radio has preserved my sanity. Just one problem, I'm not in pain except for when I laugh, and listening to you two does make me laugh. Dilemma, do I abandon you and mope, or stick with you and suffer? Yours in postmenopausal sisterhood, Deborah. Um, Deborah, I think you'll have to just just ride the pain. Although I cannot imagine what that pain is like, and if it is unbearable, just leave us for a couple of weeks until you're feeling a bit stronger. That's and also, horrible. if it's any consolation, we're really very unfunny. Uh, oh, most today. of the time, yeah, we're so, very unfunny yeah, today. So I wouldn't yeah. listen to that at all. But no. really, deepest sympathies. That is a horrible injury, mm. and I'm sure it has run through your mind that skiing's not worth it. <laughs> Well, it does make you think, doesn't it? Yes, mm. it does. Yeah, yeah. because just and a patch of ice coming up at you like that. Could be if easy. you're not very good, uh, like I'm not very good, uh, there's there's a, a kind of loop playing in your head all the time that is just, I'm, you know, something terrible is going to happen, something mm. terrible is going to happen. Mm. And I'm I'm not sure that I want to push on through with my own personal skiing journey to see whether either something terrible does happen or that thought goes away. So. It's funny though, it's not just things like that. So maybe it's just something that happens at, at our sort of age. But a really good friend of a really good friend of mine had a, just a very mundane domestic incident a couple of weeks ago that's put her in hospital. She's had any number of operations. She just had a bit of a fall. But sometimes if you fall from from the wrong height or in the wrong way at the wrong time, you can really suffer. So you know, I agree. Not and just skiing. Actually, I'd like to say uh, huge, huge warm wishes to my lovely cousin Caroline, who did exactly. Exactly that. She was carrying a great big basket of laundry down oh, the stairs, so missed the last step. Oh, yeah. Pins in the legs, everything. Really? Oh, no. Yep. Yeah. Right. They see that's that. So if you are, just, just, I mean, I tell you what, the most, isn't the most dangerous place you can be? Uh, is it's it, it it's in, in socks the, on your stairs? Yep. And, yeah. and also it's in the home. In the home. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right, that's not very cheery, cheery but we just it? say, yeah, we say, you know, get better soon. And I really hope that you're, you know, that your next holiday obviously is less eventful. Just go somewhere and lie down on a sun lounger. Uh, right, I'm going to read this one out and we don't have to dwell on the subject, Jane, because I know that we've talked quite a lot about it today. Steady yourself against something firm. 
Uh, dear Fee and Jane, can I just say how much of those of us who work with refugees are cheering Ganny Lineker and colleagues on for their stand? I can't do it publicly as I work for a local authority where I was grudgingly given just £40 to fund summer activities for young unaccompanied asylum seekers. By putting your own money in and finding generous partners and volunteers, we did manage to provide visits, sports, arts and picnics, but it just fills me with anger at how these vulnerable children are treated. No one would want that for their child. I work with a wonderful group of impressive young people who've suffered unspeakable trauma and are housed in hostels far from home without any resident care from the age of 16. It's heartbreaking and the language we use is really important. It's cheering to hear this simple plea to do better in how we talk about refugees in a public space. Thank you, Gary et al. Thank you for reading this. Keep up the good work. You cheer me and my colleagues up. We are all women of a certain age. Well, you're doing incredibly important work. If we bobble along beside you sometimes, then that's just a lovely thing for us, actually. And I hear you. Whatever you think of Gary Lineker, his salary, his position or whatever, the conversation about how we discuss people who are trying to get to this country or other countries, escape a life, uh, is just so important. And that is where it all started. Mm, I just think sometimes too many of us forget that we're almost certainly at some level, descended from somebody who came here hoping for a better life. Oh, totally. <laughs> and just, why else would you come? And also, do you know what, Jane, I quite often think when this kind of... Um, and it's not obviously not the first time that a row about the language around migration has gone off and people start saying... Some people start saying absolutely terrible things sometimes. Those people are exactly the vociferous, ambitious, determined people who would be the first to want to leave and to try and make a better life for themselves and their families in a different part of the world had they been born in the circumstances that so many people seeking migration have been born into. So it just seems so hypocritical for those people to use their voice to be mean to others. I also do think, though, and I think I said this on the radio show, although sometimes I forget what I've said, um, that I may or may not agree or disagree with what Gary Lineker said about the use of language by uh, the government. But I just wish he had. I just wish he hadn't said it because he must have known what trouble he was going to cause for an employer that I'm really fond of and care about, the BBC, and I know a lot of other people in Britain really care about the BBC and particularly understand at the moment how many challenges it's got and he just hasn't helped. Who would you think would be an acceptable person to say that? Oh, no, no, it's not. Because you could argue that... I don't think think anyone accepting over a million quid from an employer that is fighting for its life in terms of its relationship with the government at the moment... I don't think Gary Lineker has helped the BBC very much by saying what he said at the time he said it. I simply don't believe, he's an intelligent man, I simply don't believe that he didn't know what controversy he was going to cause. But but I throw this into the mix. Uh, Would it not be true that uh, during the campaign for equal pay at the BBC, it would actually have been nice to hear from extremely well-known people of both, you know, male and female colleagues who worked right at the top end in the six-figure salary department with millions of squillions of followers on Twitter. Well, we didn't, though, did we, really? No. Uh, right, uh, this is all about Richard III. Oh, no, this is important. Oh, I'm, I'm very is... glad that Louise sent this. So this is from, this is from Louise Seymour. Uh, who says, just a quick email, because I don't want Jane to get a pub quiz question wrong. Heaven forbid. I'm sure she said on Monday that one of three funerals the late Queen attended was that of King Richard III. I did, and I was wrong. A couple of things. There was no funeral for Richard. The only ceremony allowed was the reinterment of his remains in a new tomb in Leicester Cathedral. It was a big old ceremony, but not a funeral service as such. Also, the Queen definitely didn't attend. She delegated to Sophie, Countess of Wessex. Benedict Cumberland. Now, of course, uh, the Duchess of Edinburgh. So much to catch up on. So much. I'm amazed I got that right. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch was there based on the fact that he apparently is some very distant descendant <laughs> and once played Richard III. <laughs> I was lucky enough to be working for Leicester City Council, says Louise, and was involved from the point we were giving permission for the university's archaeology service to dig up the social services car park. The social workers were not pleased, as you can imagine, particularly as the city mayor said at the time they were more likely to find the bone fragments of a Kentucky Fried Chicken takeaway... (laughs) 
<laughs> and the lead archaeologist said he would eat his hat if they found Richard III. And they did. And they did. She goes on to say, happily they found him. And then we went on an amazing journey to prove that it was Richard. Um, I'm glad you had such a good time doing all of that. Uh, it does sound like a very hectic year and a bit. And Louise ends by saying anyone who knows anything about construction and high profile projects will understand that when I said, when I say that I went grey that year, although you would never know with my six weekly visits to the hairdresser. Uh, I'm very impressed it's only six weekly visits because I'm on about, I have to go about once every month at the moment. Well, I'm I'm about five. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Six and I really start to feel it. Mm. When are we going to stop dyeing our hair? Well, we'll involve you, Louise, in that conversation because I'm, I'm not stopping for the time being. No, I do love that quote. You're more likely to find a Kentucky Fried Chicken yeah, takeaway. Oh, it's Richard the Third. Just imagine some of the conversations around that. And I stand corrected. And I think I actually picked up that tidbit from the socials. So it just shows you. Um, and also, it's just fantastic that somebody with absolutely all the knowledge was listening. So really appreciate that. Do you know what else I saw on socials yesterday, which knocked me sideways? What? Genuinely. Was that apparently there was somebody on TikTok had said... This was then reported on Twitter that they knew someone who thought that the numbers on a toaster dial were related to the amount of toastiness that would be applied to the bread or bagel or whatever it might be, rather than to minutes. Oh, I've always thought it was the amount of toastiness. And so have I. I is it minutes? It's minutes. Is it always minutes? It's minutes. I had absolutely no idea. Well, I'm amazed that both you and I have come to such venerable years. I am nearly 150 years of age. With that mistaken knowledge. I thought it just meant five was very, very dark, three was a bit medium and two was flabby. No, I'm going to approach toasting my bagel tomorrow morning in a whole new way. Okay. I tell you what, I'll get I might impatient stand by now. with a timer. I'll get very impatient. Will you? I don't okay. like the idea of having to stand looking at my toaster for five minutes. Well, don't do it for five minutes. Why would you? Well, well because, be no, cooked. you do. You do. Yeah, no, I like a... See, they're, no, they're wrong, Jane, because it's not five minutes. I'm quite often at the high end of the dial, and it's not five minutes. Well, you're at the higher end of the dial, all right. <laughs> <laughs> A quick one here from Joe, uh, who says, catching up with Off Air this week as I walk my two Labradors sloping and sliding by a muddy lake. I got rather overexcited on a number of occasions at things you were chatting about and nearly went for a Burton, if I'm still allowed to say that. And I thought, are you? What? I mean, what does that come from, going for a Burton? Uh, Is that because Richard Burton drank a lot and fell over? Isn't there another Richard Burton? Something to do with opera? I don't know. Composer. I've never stopped to think about what going for a Burton means. Gone for a Burton. That's gone for a Burton. Uh, and maybe it's one of those phrases that we've been using it without understanding oh that there's yeah. something wrong with it. Gosh. Yeah. You better get back in touch, Joe. Uh, Joe also says uh, that she's got in touch this time because of the mention of the lady shed. Uh, no plug, she says. Well, it is kind of. Our podcast, Rich Pickings, comes straight from my podcasting partner, Nina's Garden Shed, which has bookshelves and armchairs and is a very nice place to record from. And last week, we had the ultimate praise of our guest, James Alexander Sinclair, telling us that he enjoys listening to us after listening to you. Anyway, the point is we love a shed and everyone should have one. Uh, She goes on to say, I got very, very excited last month at your mention of Commissario Brunetti, Donna Leon's hero. And uh, she's attached a video of the opening night of the Venice Carnival from the actual terrace belonging to Commissario Brunetti. Uh, When I say actual, I mean the spot used for the TV location. It often happens that when one's in the bathroom minding one's own business, there'll be a plaintive, Is das Haus von Commissario Brunetti? call from a hopeful German visitor who's come all the way to find this location only to discover, as so often happens in this watery city, that you need to travel half an hour back to the other side of the Grand Canal in order to view it. Now this is because Commissario Brunetti is one of the most successful long-running crime dramas in Germany uh, where the rights were sold. Oh, they've got a TV show there. So they've got a TV show that, that keeps... And do you remember we had this conversation about strange places where a crime novel becomes really famous without the people yeah. around them really Knowing understanding it. it. There are German series set in Cornwall as well, aren't there? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think the Chamomile Lawn. Right. No. 
Yes, I think wasn't it the writings of the of that novelist? Oh, anyway, yeah. uh, but that just made me laugh uh, because uh, I was also wondering if I'd be able to watch because obviously I love Commissario Brunetti. Would I be able to watch the German version with English subtitles? Obviously, written about Italy. Or is that too much of a journey to be taken on, do you think? I'm back in Brexit. <laughs> I understand a word of that. Um, let's, let's just involve uh, Paul in Chelmsford. Uh, I know you wanted pictures of she sheds with their soft furnishings, wall coverings and wicker chairs, but I want to offer my man cave. More brutal plain white walls, drab grey blinds, tools hanging from the rafters and the obligatory work made. It's all, it's all a bit of a mess as I'm building a model railway and the danger of having a man cave is I no longer put my tools away. Um, Paul, thank you. Uh, yes, it, yours is a very butch world indeed and one I wouldn't dream of entering. But thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us. He was the bloke I met on the gondola yes, going up the mountain him. in Bansko. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. Hello, touch. Paul. Yes, yeah, nice to have you he's on board. He's obviously not forgotten you, has he? Mm. <laughs> a holiday flirtation. Who knows where it might <laughs> Do be. You, know you always think that literally whenever I talk to a man... <laughs> that, that, that there's some kind of relationships going to follow. We had a really interesting conversation about gentrification, about knife crime outside of London. Gentrification and knife crime. <laughs> All on the gondola, on yeah, the way it's, up. It's not that flirty, is it really, when you put it not like really. that? No. I think we talked about the legalisation of helmets across Europe as well. <laughs> uh, Molly says, not sure what's been going on in the last 24 hours, but last night I hopped into a bubble bath with a, hot, with a chocolate mousse pot. <laughs> Uh, it was a rare treat. She was—I should say that she it, she was eating it. It was a rare treat for me to eat in the bath, and I was listening to Fern Cotton's podcast, which began to sud- go into sudden detail about the distinctive tang of fox poo. As you can imagine, not much of the moose was enjoyed after that. No, I can imagine, and though Fern's onto something, that is a particularly vile stench, isn't it? Uh, this afternoon, as I sat working from home, I decided to heat up a slice of carrot cake as an afternoon treat while listening to you both, and talk almost immediately turned to. I must admit I had to put you both on mute to eat the cake. I got through in the end. Is this some demonic sign from the universe to tell me to stop having sweet treats? No, Molly, it's no sign. Um, You just go on enjoying your treats in the bath. I don't actually... I remember a great joy before I needed glasses to read was to read in the bath. And now I just can't do that anymore. How did you deal with the steam? Well, no, because I didn't need glasses to to read from just read a book. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it was the whole long and sight and thing. since the glasses have come on, you can't it takes that little joy away, doesn't it? Another yeah. thing that you just learn to live without. But also, why? How come you could be comfortable reading in the bath? Because you're absolutely minute, and well, didn't you slip down? Did you have one of those sticky things at the top? <laughs> <a> special thing <laughs> stuck you? me to the top of the bath. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> do you know what? That's what you should. That's what you should market later in life. What would you call it? And. <laughs> An in-bath harness. <laughs> Midget pad. Yes. <laughs> That'd be all right. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm more thinking it's something you attach to the taps at one end and some kind of firm piece of furniture at the other hmm. and it just kind of lifts you up and holds you, you know, like a hammock so co- across the bath. Like a bob about gently. Yes. As the waves ever flow. Yep. And you think... Or maybe just get an in-bath chair. Am I in Santorini or am I still at home? Mm. As I glance up at my bottle of matey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I tell you what, the whiff of romance is never going to die in your household. You should try some Badidas, shouldn't you? Do you remember that advert? Things happen after a Badidas bath. And I always wondered (laughs) when I was about eight. That sounds terrible. What? What's, what awful fate's going to befall this pretty woman? Uh, right, this comes from Francis. Uh, I love the email you read out on Thursday about kindness being next to wisdom. Oh, this is a really good one, Jane. And then we will get to our lovely guest, Dan Snow. Uh, and that giving someone an exit route out of a sticky situation can be an act of kindness in itself. I've always associated wisdom with empathy. I think it's less about pure knowledge and more about walking around a problem to find out how other people might see it. The email made me think about my cousin. She's a humanitarian aid worker and an expert in negotiation with armed non-state actors. I mean, that's a job, isn't it? Yeah. 
and has lived and worked all over the Middle East for the last 10 years. I asked her recently how she managed negotiations. I think I was expecting something about walking in authoritatively and trying to look powerful. But she replied, it's only ever about building a ladder for the other person to climb down. There's a quiet strength in that, which I think is a lot more impressive than bulldozing. And I really wanted to give her a shout-out. She's one of the most life-affirming people I've ever known and my absolute hero, who's always been like a big sister to me. Well, what a lovely thing to say about somebody, Francis. We're more than happy to do that shout-out. And just imagine if you're trying to do that job, Jane, where actually allowing somebody to get themselves out of the place of aggression Mm. that they're in really does take some doing, doesn't it? You can't meet it with aggression because that just escalates that it. Help at all. But mm. the kind of machinations you're going to have to do to allow that person to come good without losing face. Oof. It does take a proper amount of thought mm. and a quick a quick reaction would not be appropriate, would it? No. No. Um, I just wanted to mention Barnes has sent a, a lovely email, a very long one, uh, full of all sorts of musings. Um, they're currently accompanying, that's Barnes and her husband, I think it's her, on a two-month overseas tour uh, so far. The couple have been to Malaysia, gosh, Melbourne, Tasmania, a place I've never heard of called Noosa. What's that? No. Uh, Coffs Harbour, Nelson Bay. Have you heard of Noosa? Yes. Kia is an Australian. She's Antipodean. She's producing our podcast this week. So what is Noosa? Uh, like a beach town. Uh, Is it like Blackpool? <laughs> very, very, very Southport. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. A little bit. Basically, so Barnes has gone all this way just to visit somewhere that she could have visited in the Mersey Riviera, Southport. Uh, Nelson Bay and now in Sydney before we head off to Hawaii and San Francisco. We're returning to Heathrow on the 2nd of April. Um, but that's not why I'm, I don't know why I mentioned all this, although it does sound an amazing trip. Does she want us to pick her up? <laughs> yes, my flight gets in. No, uh, I am relatively close to Heathrow, although long-term listeners will know I struggle to find it. Um, so yeah, no... Don't ever ask Jane to pick you up at the airport. Don't book me for an airport pickup. Um, but Barnes wanted to uh, reminisce about, she had an aunt who pronounced things in a funny way, a bit like my great-aunt Rita, who for a period of time, towards the end of her life, decided that coins was pronounced Cohen's. And Barnes's aunt uh, also took a similar term. Oh, no, it was her mother-in-law. That's right, her mother-in-law, who died a few weeks off her 106th birthday. She always talked uh, very fondly about a place she insisted was called the Coxwolds. And it was the same lady who told me on our first meeting, (laughs) this is a great quote, you don't need to look like a boy. There are operations nowadays. Then she got, you have big legs for such a slim person. (laughs) Mary didn't dress well either. Mary was my husband's previous wife. <laughs> Gosh. Legend. Hashtag legend. That's what that lady clearly was. Oh, that's amazing. I cannot wait to be approaching my 106th birthday. God, the podcast will be good then, won't it? Because you'll be, you'll be quite perky. You'll only be 102. Yeah. And <laughs> so you'll be very much in charge. And it'll be great. I'll be saying exactly what I want. Yes. Uh, I can't wait for that too. It'll be absolutely glorious. Uh, I don't think there ever comes a time where I think I'm always going to be, well, I know that I was going to be four years younger than you. I don't think there comes a time when I'm allowed to kind of overtake you in years, Jane. No, well, no. I'm, not, I'm not an idiot. I do know that. <laughs> no, but you've just said that I'll be in charge. I don't think that's going to well, happen. Well, I mean, I meant that I might be a little frailer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Right, shall we talk about historian Dan Snow now? Yes. Okay, it is time. Uh, He came on the programme today and he was really delightful. Uh, He wanted to talk about his Channel 5 documentary, which he's made with the archaeologist Raksha Dave, which is all about the Black Death. But he did indulge us as well because we thought, as a man who has studied so much history, and actually modern British history in particular, uh, we wanted him to give us some context about Gary Lineker's tweet and the bit where that all started where he compared the language used in the government's new asylum seeker policy to that of 1930s Germany. There are very clever historians, eminent people, who have said he was, yeah, he was right, that the, the, uh, the, the, the language of the 1930s became about othering, 
uh, talking about picking on a group in society and giving them a kind of disproportionate agency in the problems that working men and women face. You go, the reason your lives are rubbish is because these these people over here. Now, clearly, you know, there's, there's migrant boats is a, is a problem that people are very exercised about. But, you know, for example, it's less likely to affect your life than the cost of childcare or the ability to uh, make your mortgage next mortgage payments in, in, in light of in increasing rates. So, And yet, for some reason, we, we, we're programmed as a species to kind of go, that's a nice target. There's some people in some boats, they're coming over here. So this, let's talk about this in, in a kind of disproportionate way to their actual importance, I think, in, their, in all of our lives. So... And I think what he was referring to is, is that, that, that it begins, it began, it didn't, in the famous expression, it didn't begin with massive genocide. It began with a slow attritional process of undermining sort of people's personhood and creating an out group in order to kind of bolster power of, of, a, of an entrenched political interest. The problem is on the other side, it, it's clearly deeply offensive to victims of fascism, the, ten, the hundreds of millions, of tens of millions of people who died in the middle of the 20th century, whose lives were ruined, to start, to start, and you didn't use the word fascist or Nazi, but you know, you're, make, you're making that, you're, you're comparing two things that on, perhaps there are big dissimilarities mm. as well. So I'm kind of really boring, unfortunately. I, I, think, I think the language, you, you can't, I don't think you can fire someone for that tweet. You can sort of disagree with it and take it. And it's kind of interesting, but, but it wasn't a grotesque, um, sackable offence, I don't think. Um, and also, it's outside, as you guys have been discussing, it's outside work, you know, how do we how do we manage this? Yeah. Do you think it was just a rather naive interpretation of history? <sighs> well, I, I mean, I, I think if... I, I, I think it's, I don't know, naive. I mean, I think it is... There, aren't, there are historians who've come out and said, actually, no, this is... This is, this is the... Choosing, pick, choosing groups to, to highlight... And talk about in the same way that we talk about trans people. There are very few trans people in this country. Very few of us meet trans people on a regular basis. And yet the amount of time we spend talking about trans people is extraordinary. Now, part of that is because certain malign interests want us to kind of be worried and be mobilised and not talk about other things that do actually affect us. Like I say, like your kids' primary school results and building state of building repair and stuff. So I, I think it, it's not necessarily naive. I just think it's an, it's one interpretation that. Is is probably, you know, it's, it's, I have some sympathy for it, but I, I think it is. It's pushing. It's yeah. It, it, historians would say that's that that is sort of pushing at a pushing at that parallel. And by the way, the fact that he was then immediately, if, if you're if you're looking to um, say that there's no, we have nothing in common with 1930s Germany, immediately trying to get the person fired who said that and, and shutting down that debate is not a terrific look. I mean, the, the sort of perhaps perhaps demonstrating that you're very happy with that free speech and you choose to ignore it. And mm. you know, that might have been a, a, a cleverer way to handle it for those who disagreed with him. We will, we will come to, on to talk about the Black Death in, in just a couple of moments' time. Um, I was very struck by something that was said by Pat Young, who used to work at the BBC, who was in charge of television, I think, for a, a while this morning, where he said the important thing to remember uh, is that people have a right to comment on the kind of passage of history. We are standing by history all the time when we look at news and current affairs in our present. And if you want to be a person who doesn't want to see history History repeated. You're entitled to say something at this time. I thought that was a very good point to make. Yeah, I think the weird thing is we complained about 10, 15, 20 years ago now. We all complained the whole time. The only things kids studied in school was the rise of totalitarianism in Europe. And we thought, oh, there's lots of other bits of history out there they should be studying. And it turns out we have seen the rise of totalitarianism. We have seen India, the United States of America, Indonesia, Russia, uh, uh, Hungary... Backslide democratically. So the so the point is, well, why why did we? I grew up going never again, always remember, blah blah, drilled into you again and again and again. The, one of the worst things that ever happened in the history of the human race was is was mid century, twentieth century Europe, right, and and Japan and elsewhere. So if we, we you either kind of go, okay, well let's let's use this currency. Yeah, wow, we should be at, look, we're not there yet, but this is a bit alarming. This characterization of trans people like this or of of. Uh, of the boat crossings like this, let, let's deal with them in a kind of rational, evidence-led way. 
gosh, it's, it is getting a little bit... There, is a, there are hints here of the 1930s. It, that's the kind of point, I thought, of teaching it all the time. If every time you go, well, some, you know, Trump with his armed insurrection on the camera, that's a bit 1930s, isn't it? If every time you go, no, you can never use the 1930s parallel, that's deeply... Di-, you know, that was a unique evil. You go, well, hang on, like, where are <laughs> So what's the point? I don't know. I mean, if we can talk about France in the 1790s, if you want. But it's, 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 whether we like it or not, that is our historical hinterland for 90% of people out there. They, they don't, they're not that interested in talking about... Uh, the 18th century corruption in Britain or, the, or France or, or, or even the American Civil War. We, we talk about the 1930s. We watch movies about the 1930s. We have podcasts and wonderful books. You have people on here all the time talking about the 1930s. So that's kind of what we use. And I think that's okay. Um, and it leads to robust discussion like we had at the moment. But it, I think it's not, as I say, I can't come back to it. It's not a firing offence, is it? And, and particularly given the hypocrisy of certain other presenters on the BBC using that platform or using that Twitter to celebrate things like Brexit or whatever else. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Dan Snow, the historian, is our guest, and his documentaries, they're already running, actually, aren't they, on Channel 5? They already have to go on the internet now and find them, yeah. My 5, and they're all about uh, the Black Death. And um, I did not know that the Black Death came to our shores via a quiet place in Dorset. It looked absolutely idyllic. Just explain exactly what happened. Well, we think, obviously, it's quite hard to know. We think it essentially came into Weymouth. In fact, it was a a suburb of Weymouth at the time, a little fishing village. Mm. And it arrived there, we think, from southern France in the hold of ships. So the interesting thing about um, the black the, the pandemic disease, and we, I talked about this a lot on, the, on my podcast history at last during the pandemic, is each pandemic sort of reflects the world in which we're living. So this recent pandemic affected disproportionately, as we now know, we've rehearsed it all. It affected the old. It particularly affected um, people with you know obesity and things like that. Well, we live in an old, quite obese world at the moment. Now, in... Um, 14th century Europe. It was a, a place of coastal trade, of small boats coming um, up, beetling up the coast from Bordeaux, possibly carrying wine to do with the English affliction for French wine, and rats travelling in the cargoes. Wet, damp cargoes, perfect places for rats to travel. So it's you know the technology of the time, the economy of the time, the, the patterns of life at the time then are reflected in the kind of pandemics we get. So in the 19th century, we get these kind of Asiatic dysentery, the cholera and stuff. We get these Asiatic diseases from empire soldiers coming back from these imperial uh, missions out, out to these. So, it, uh, the, but yes, the 14th century was about the reasonably slow pro... Well, actually, in retrospect, I guess quite quick. I mean, the whole of Britain was basically covered in about a year. But it goes from village... So from Weymouth, it just makes its way up through Dorset. And we're able to trace that with these amazing documents that survive. These sort of almost like parish records, not quite, but... And they, they say, you know, in this month, one person died and we redistributed his uh, will. This is what we did. But then they're all set to property, of course, and land. And then three months later, you've got 40 people die. You know, it's extraordinary numbers, spikes in the number of um, mortality, in, in mortality. And then it hits big cities and then it kind of, and then it, it, London and Bristol get hammered. And then the north of England was fine for a while and then it eventually succumbed as well. But it never got to Scotland, never got to Ireland. Well, no, I think it, I mean, it did get to Scotland. And, and I think it, we, we, the, the records are less good. But, but we think it touched, well, we think it touched Scotland and Ireland for sure. Uh, and, and there's certain, 
uh, there's certain reasons that certain communities come off slightly better, we think, around you know the number of rats, for example. Rats, I didn't know, are, are not native to the UK. They are tree-dwelling animals. So it's another kind of aspect of medieval life. They loved these wooden houses with thatch and these wooden beams. It, it was that genetically they're... Rats are kind of culturally predisposed to seek those kind of environments. Ugh, there is so much, I have to say. If you've got youngish children, I think they'll quite enjoy some of the I know. truly diabolical details. It's funny, we, we're obsessed with medical. The medical history always does very well. I'm not surprised. If you get far enough away from it, it becomes funny. And of course, actually, mm. you're describing the most tragic and appalling course, thing. And actually, you do it's, make that clear. I want to know. At okay, one point, good. there is a I'm detail <laughs> where you say that um, people were in such agony that they were barking like dogs. That is this apparently. was no way to die, was it? Yeah. If there is a good way to die, it wasn't this. No. No, I think this was a particularly bad way. And this, the, the, the lack of being able to do anything about it, of course, the, inst- the, the ignorance, the you know, uncertainty. We've, we, um, in York, we came across wills where it seems fairly clear that the person writing the will was about to die because then you get the kind of stamp going, this will was enacted a, a week later, so it could just be coincidence. But, and, you know, you're, you can see as you're dying in pain, you're kind of trying to make, make arrangements for your kids. I mean, it's just awful. It is that... And and it, we think it's a third to a half of of the population of this island, you know, that were killed in a, in this very short space of time. And what did the authorities? What could the authorities do to try to contain it? Not much. I mean, I'm quite interested. There was some sense of social distancing, but there was not. You wouldn't call it public information campaign. I mean, the king and the pope both seem to have sat in a room and not let anyone come near them. So we, there was a kind of I. A sense of like this person-to-person transmission, I think. Uh, um, but on the whole, so on the whole, what the what the king does, the state is tries to legislate for the effects of it. So it just kind of tries to. No one's going to increase the price of bread. There's no crops being grown in the fields. The price of bread's going through the roof, and so the state spends more time just going stop selling bread too expensively. And it's like, well, thanks, mate. You know, that's not helping. And then the other one, you know, states go peasants aren't allowed to move around because actually, it was in some ways, it was a. Right, it actually, those if you were lucky enough to survive, it was kind of a social mobility engine because obviously everyone suddenly needed labour mm. for their fields and enterprises. And so if you were previously quite sort of attached to the land, you had to just work work away for your local lord, you could sort of nip off to the local town and get a better job or you nip off to a neighbouring lord. So you see a lot of kind of con- trying to control... Basically, the monarchy, the, the, royal, the, the sort of royal government just trying to kind of suppress everything, like, let's just make... Please, just go back to normal. So there wasn't much in the way of... Um, kind of prevention. Although there are some things around cleaning up streets and stuff, but yeah, it's it's not. It's they, they didn't really know why it transmitted. And of course, in fact, everyone went off to Canterbury in particular and gathered together and, and tried to pray. You know, at the shrine there in Canterbury Cathedral, and that obviously was a sort of you know mass super spreading event. Spread event yeah. How much would other parts of the country have known about what was happening? So, how would people in London have known what was happening in Bristol? Good question. Letters, um, letters, and then and then dissemination. Information was power at that point. So merchants very well connected. So there's the famous story, much later century, about the Rothschild family sort of finding out the result of the Battle of Waterloo before everyone else and buying loads of shares in London because they realised that might go through. So, so speed of so, so merchants would always have quite a nifty. You know, if the king died and there was a struggle between his sons or whatever, for you, you might want to. Just make sure you haven't got much inventory left at the moment because, you know, chances are there's going to be a bit of... So I think you'd end up with these letters that would travel north and then they would be they would be sort of shared within communities in, in you know, in, in markets and that kind of stuff. So it was very, as you can imagine, very gabbled, very uncertain. The church was important. So the church was a sort of conduit where you could... There was some hierarchy where you could reach out to village, parishes and with with a particular message. But it was the, the north of England knew what was coming. It's quite scary. York was like, mm, we're all right so far, and then, but but they knew what this kind of absolute terrible event was going on in the south. Mm. Uh, Did uh, so religion is it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't. I mean, I could be wrong, and you can contradict me. I don't think there was any kind of religious revival during COVID, was there? Well, that's a good question. I, I'm, did, did religion sustain people, or was it simply that at the time there was no alternative? Yeah. I am not a religious person, therefore I don't know. I, I remember th- people hearing reports that churches... But you never you could have just been pre-vicars going, no, we're very busy on our Zoom at the moment. <laughs> We've all been guilty of that, let's be honest, yes, claiming yes. we've got lots Speaking of online followers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think, 
Yes, I, I, perhaps, yeah, perhaps that's interesting. Perhaps it's because in a time of when you really don't have a clue what's going on, you do mm. turn to at least something that might provide. And and there's a lot of there were a lot of religious people carrying trinkets, people blessing things, um, nosegays under under your nose to try to clear bad odors and smells. Um, and there was a kind of and, and bits of paper with re- religious, um, you know, funny. Uh, Christian sort of me almost memes written on them, and you'd put them next to your heart and things like that. So it, no, you certainly see uh, you certainly see a lot of that. Mm. And what about um, the after effects? The economic recovery must have been very very slow progress. Well, it was pretty slow progress, I think, and the population didn't rebound for hundreds of years. Is the, is the thinking? Uh, it's it's a bit like COVID in some respects. It does seem like it kind of accelerated change that was already in the air. So like with, I always think with COVID. You know, the high street just took another battery. Yeah, it was in trouble anyway. And it took an absolute kicking. Um, COVID, uh, digital entertainment. You know, it, it benefited. But so it seems like if you look at that sort of people, some people sort of call it feudalism, that break up. That that was sort of slightly accelerated by the Black Death. And so it seemed, yeah, it, it sort of what was it magnified things that were already happening. I think, and I, yeah, I think it would have taken a long time. Uh, although, of course, the economy was a lot simpler back then. You know, it was overwhelmingly agricultural, so harvests were... Uh, and and the, big, the big issue is not enough people to collect harvest. That was, that yeah, was huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then famously, that's why you get these plague villages that are kind of pretty much abandoned. Well, yes, there's a, a very sad uh, part of the the second part of the documentary, I think, when Raksha Dave, your archaeologist yeah. colleague, goes to a completely abandoned I village. I was very jealous of that assignment. Yeah, but well, 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 when they go up and you see the drone uh, footage, you can see that there was once foundations and yeah. um, beautiful, presumably beautiful homes there. And Absolutely. It, it's actually very... We think of it as a life... Well, clearly it's more than one lifetime yeah. away. Well, a lifetime it's Closer to me than I thought. I had no idea you'd still be able to okay. see the foundations of abandoned villages. Yes, I think that's the funny thing about history. I find so much... Of, you, when, you, when you meet a 100-year-old person, you start doing that fun game of thinking, who could they have met? And it doesn't take you very long, you know, to get back a long way. And I think we, we this whole... All our human history has just been the blink of an eye. Yeah, One of the true. things I found terrifying, Dan, was the notion that the bacteria is actually still with us. Oh, yeah, knocking about, yeah. Knocking about. Yeah. But, I mean, it has, it has killed it people. Kills, it kills people in the 20th century, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it kills... I mean, it's, luckily, it's antibiotics to deal with it now. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's, um, it's one of those remarkable, life-changing... Uh, that's the weird thing. I, I find it, you know, whenever I'm on the podcast, when, so I, I find history is something that is good for my mental health because you when we focus as we just said on on migrant boats or things that anger us and upset us about the modern world uh you realize actually we should probably just quickly tip our hat to the old antibiotic revolution mm. you know like it's yeah. all of us would have lost siblings and mothers and loved ones or our own lives in childbirth you know it's it's astonishing the pain and the the, the hardship and the misery that existed until yesterday you know and it of course still does we are still a work in progress but it is fascinating that the idea that you just i mean it's like this new thing for for obesity you know this new injection oh that's done that's good, isn't it? I mean, the economist is like, oh, Ron, we just solved obesity. That's quite useful, wasn't it? And that, the other one that last year, I was going on about it. Everyone thought I was mad. Is NASA dis, like to put that meteor off, like di- redirected it? Yeah. It's like, yeah. hold on a minute. For what that did for the dinosaurs, and now we've just gone, yeah. And then we sorted that problem out. I mean, that's kind of unbelievably amazing. And we, but we rightly we focus on things that need doing, I guess. But I think occasionally you give yourself a little pat on the back. Yeah, and well, maybe the news agenda is a little bit skewed because you're right. Both of those stories are massive, but we've spent a lot of time talking about vastly it. more important yeah. than anything else that's happening in the newspapers. Well, let's hope so, anyway. Well, yes. But, um, can we just squeeze in a quick word about yeah. the approaching coronation? Oh, we all yes. So, um, what can you offer us, historian Dan? Oh, I can offer you all sorts. Funny coronations. About, oh, I tell you, history here is your home for all things coronations. Oh, no, it wasn't hey, Sorry, sorry. to plug that. Um, so, <laughs> Queen, uh, obviously, George IV's wife, barred from the Abbey, not allowed in for the coronation, uh, and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, William the Conqueror, who, when he was crowned in Westminster Abbey, his guards thought the shout of acclamation was actually a shout of uprising, and they torched all the surrounding buildings. So there's loads of, <laughs> okay. there's loads of good coronation content. i got yeah. plenty coming up. All right, but are neither you, of those two things will happen. Are you going? I don't think so. No invite well, at the moment. Uh, yet, as yet. Well, you know, you better be careful because I might publish my autobiography and then everyone will be in big trouble. So, Well, don't look at me. I'm not in your autobiography. <laughs> at least I don't think so. Am I? Scribbling <laughs> um, <laughs> a new chapter, as we speak. That was historian Dan Snow talking to us about his new documentary, The Black Death, and you can... <laughs> Sorry, it's 
just, you can't. It's hard to give it the big sell. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting, really. I actually rather wished that they'd called it something like, I don't know, something that referred to buboes and pus. Because that's what it was. That's that's the in, the horribly intriguing bit that that they ended up focusing on a lot mm. in the documentary. It's like a very niche nightclub. <laughs> uh, you can watch it now on Channel Five. But the strange thing is, as well, Jane, there are just so many uh, comparisons to the recent pandemic that you wouldn't have thought there would be because there are five hundred years, nearly six hundred years. Uh, spanning Mm. between those two pandemics but the lockdowns the fear you know the hesitancy about believing that it was a real thing some of the bunkum surrounding it the way that you might be able to cure yourself you know with things that just don't work you know that's all there in human nature in 1438 as much as it 48 48 really just because i got richard the third wrong okay um as as you know as it was Early a couple of years ago, here yeah. it was. It was. I think that's why sobering I found it, to watch. Yeah, very sobering. Yes. And uh, the, did you? It was the bit where he went to that village in Dorset where the Black Death, we think, arrived in England, and it couldn't have looked lovelier, could it? Just yeah. a tranquil scene, and one morning, a boat came in, and that was it. I was surprised as well, just by how quickly people died. Mm. So you'd be infected on the Monday, and quite possibly be dead by Wednesday or Thursday. Mm. You know, there's just a, a just to have your body ravaged so quickly mm. by something must have been so painful and, and utterly terrifying. I mean, just terrifying. Oh, so um, that's fun times, Channel yeah, Five. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, interesting. Um, I just wanted to mention this because it's from somebody who was kind enough to come to the Wow Festival show. We did an edition of Off Air at the Wow Festival on the at the South Bank Centre in London on Friday, and that will be made available. We think towards the end of this week. I think it drops on Friday. It drops on Friday wherever you get Off Air from. But we've had a lovely email and an interesting one from a female plastic surgeon. Um, she is, I don't, well, no, I, I won't mention her name just in case. She says, I thought it was a really interesting show with two amazing guests. And our guests were June Oscar, who was an amazing um, Indigenous rights social justice commissioner. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Um, and she was so interesting. And, and I'm afraid I just felt so ignorant about First Nations people. And I, I learned a lot from talking to June. So I hope other people enjoyed it. And our other guest was Mira Sayal, um, who um, it's obviously well known to anybody who's um, watched British television over recent years. And she is starring in a new detective show, isn't she? Which is going Mrs. To do investigates. That's right. So she's at the peak of her powers. So she was great as well. Anyway, um, this lady who was there says, I'm a female plastic surgeon in the NHS. Sexism and stereotypical views of surgeons still very much exist both within our profession and in the public domain. I can recount many personal tales of gender bias. These include being expected to insert urinary catheters for patients rather than my male co-workers, as if I would know the male anatomy any better, (laughs) to patients asking me to thank their surgeon without realising I was the surgeon. My experience and sentiments are shared by many female doctors, and this is evidenced by the hashtag MedBikini campaign in 2020. This is especially felt by the black, Asian, minority ethnic doctors, myself included, who've suffered a disproportionate amount of conscious and unconscious professional and social biases. Um, That's interesting. She ends by saying, how and on what platforms would you recommend us to share our stories safely as healthcare professionals? And that's, I don't know whether I'm equipped to answer. I mean, I don't really see why you can't make your own podcast or... Well, I think there's always a fear and I think it's it's a a well-placed fear, actually, that your voice is as recognisable as your face. Mm. And I think it's true, actually. I think you can tell who it is who's talking. So maybe a podcast uh, isn't for you. No, I think a true. blog, you know, you could be pretty anonymous on that. Uh, I would definitely try and make that happen because those stories are well worth hearing. And just being able to peel away uh, some of the facade of medicine is just, as you know, so helpful to patient and doctor, I think. So... I really hope you can carry 
carry on going with some kind of project that allows you to do that. I did look up the med bikini because I'd not heard yeah, of that hashtag, uh, and and I hope that I've I've got it right. It appears to be a a very valid campaign about uh, doctors and nurses being able to. Uh, not be judged by their appearances. If you want to wear a bikini, if you are a doctor, a female doctor, and you want to go to work in something that maybe the old-fashioned medical profession didn't approve of, mm. it's absolutely your right to do that. So I think it's in that kind of okay. vein right. of you know being able to just be whoever you are. Can I just say on the point of June Oscar and the things that you learnt, I went to Tate Modern at the weekend. Oh, yeah. Did you say the Tate Modern? Tate Modern. Does it really matter? You know, Big art gallery in okay. London. I don't want this to be too London-centric, but as most of our listeners seem to be in Brisbane, perhaps you'll forgive me if I am, uh, there is the most magnificent exhibition there, free exhibition, uh, which is a year in Australia, which has got so much Aboriginal art um, and a lot of really, I mean, quite heartbreaking uh, works of art detailing the struggle of First Nation people, uh, it's well worth seeing. And it just happened to be, you know, on the same weekend that we talked to June. Mm. And just some of the the facts, like you, you couldn't have the vote in Queensland until 1965 if you had any Aboriginal blood in your family. So there are quite a few letters from people writing in to say, I really believe that I could have a part in democracy because I'm this, that and the other. And people writing back saying, no, there is some Aboriginal connection. You may not have the vote, you know, even though we're on your land. And there's the most beautiful map of what we call Australia, but it's a map of what the indigenous communities called all of their communities. And it's just, it's so moving to see. So if you're in town, it is free. You can wander through, and some of the art's just beautiful as well. So just so that's that free, that just because sometimes you go there and you have to pay extra, but you don't for that. Not for that. One. Okay, well, no, right. No. Okay, thank you for that, and thank you for all your fantastic emails. Um, I'm shuffling paper. Yes, shuffling paper. He's going off to a new yoga class. I am. We have to get a wiggle on, and I've got a vegan sausage and bean bake that I made oh, yesterday. Well, you see that? I can't be honest. That is more appealing as a Monday night. I just I've signed up to this because I just right. thought I needed to reinvigorate my yoga practice, as I think they call it. Jane. You, invigorate, you reinvigorate your yoga practice, and I'll be parping away all day tomorrow on the strength of my bake. Right, have a very very good evening. So much to look forward to. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you like what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.